from Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Good afternoon, good evening, good day. Whenever you happen to be listening to our podcast, we welcome you. Um, this is Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, we are experiencing a time that is unprecedented. Um, the spotlight has been firmly planted on Black Lives Matter after many years and decades of reason for it to be on them in the first place. Um, but it is it is probably more firmly uh, there than it ever has been before. In this um, spotlight and examining how horrifically our black citizens have been treated at the hands of the state, police, and law enforcement, um, there is a subset of people that are not getting as much of the attention as they should because they're getting a disproportionate amount of the uh, violence and attention in a negative way. And that is the um, LGBTQ people of color who are are being persecuted in many cases. Um, We have, as as per per usual in the legal realm, um, a group that is standing forth and fighting for Um, the community, and that, of course, is Lambda Legal, and they have just um, filed with the um, uh, General Barr's commission um, that uh, papers the uh, persecution, or not support, but but call to to have action taken over the persecution of LGBTQ people of color. Um, We have a very special guest today. Uh, Puneet Shima is the staff attorney at Lambda Legal. She has worked on many fascinating cases uh, fighting for the rights of LGBTQ citizens. And um, so in a few minutes, we're gonna have her on and she's going to tell us more about this particular uh, fight. And um, in the meantime, I wanna welcome my uh, esteemed co-host to the show, Brody Levesque. Hey, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, and whatever time of day it is to all of our listeners, and we thank you very much for listening. Today is a rather somber uh, anniversary date. Four years ago today, I found myself in Orlando, Florida, covering yet another American mass shooting tragedy, only this one hit really close to home as we lost 49 people principally Latinx, uh, and they were all LGBTQI, and they had been shot and murdered to the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. It's hard to believe that we're four years later, but here we are. Um, it's, it's critically important to also note that no real significant change has taken place uh, in the system of government and laws and in protections against mass shootings since Pulse, we've had several others of uh, equal or horrific uh, value, including uh, the shooting in South Florida on Valentine's Day, 
a couple of years after Pulse uh, at Parkland, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Um, so for this day, for me as a journalist, uh, for reporters that covered it, for the community at large, and especially my heart goes out uh, to uh, friends and family in Orlando, uh, we are Orlando strong. Uh, today is also another infamous day for another reason. 57 years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, a family lost their father, their husband, and the United States lost a very dedicated activist for the civil rights of African Americans and others. I'm going to read a brief part of a statement that was sent to me um, earlier today. Uh, and it was sent to me by Rihanna Evers, who is the daughter of slain civil rights leader, Meggert Evers. She writes, 57 years ago today, I lost my daddy, Meggert Wiley Evers. He was murdered by a white supremacist after coming home from doing his life's work of seeking justice and equality for African Americans across Mississippi and the United States. My dad taught us to be strong, to stand up for what is right and just, and to never stop fighting for justice and equality in this world. So, um, interestingly enough, juxtaposition against those two tragic events, almost like bookends, um, and this is, of course, kind of one of those days in history, but on June the 12th of 1967, the Supreme Court of the United States, in a unanimous decision, all nine justices found that Virginia's interracial marriage law violated the 14th Amendment to the Constitution in the Supreme Court known as Loving versus Virginia. And I'm quoting, under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry, a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. Chief Justice Earl Warren. So today's kind of an important date. And as we look topically at the events of the last two to three weeks, particularly since the murder of George Floyd by uh, that former Minneapolis police officer. We look at the strife that has occurred virtually across the entire spectrum of the United States. We look at, even as recently in the last couple of days where we've had a couple more murders of black trans women occur, I, I think that it's really important that we footnote and remember these sort of things and that, you know, as a society and as a culture and as a whole, we need to understand that we really do need to move forward. We need to address these things, but at the same time, it's terribly, terribly, terribly important important that, that we remember these events. Uh, you know, ironically, President Trump, uh, who's been one to stir the pot uh, racially across the board, has made a bunch of noise in the last couple of days um, about not allowing the U.S. military to rename some of its more strategic and very important military bases who were named after Confederate officers. And he tweeted out um, those who do not, and I'm paraphrasing, those you know who do not remember their history are doomed to repeat it. Now, coming from him, I find that relatively ironic. Um, and with that, Rob, uh, I'll throw it back at yeah, you. Yeah, what 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 does that even mean in that context? That that we're, if we forget, that that makes no yeah. sense. 
It it well I, again this is <laughs> yes I know I I I'm not exactly sure where the president felt that he should be going with that um, and it was you know one of several in a in a twinter you know rampage um, but I think that if Mega Evers were alive today he would be extremely pleased uh, with the fact that. You know, everybody's taking, you know, to the streets. We're, we're seeing a color uh, palette out there of, you know, black, brown, white, Asian faces all striving for the same thing. And to, you know, readdress, you know, societal wrongs. And if that includes pulling down statues of, you know, Confederate leaders and renaming army bases and, you know, finally putting you know, the proverbial stake in the heart of the metaphoric vampire uh, that is racism, which has afflicted the United States since its very beginning as a country. Um, I think that Megger would be very pleased to see that there are a lot of people pulling together and coming together uh, to make this happen. And uh, But there's still critical, critical areas that we need to address. And as long as this administration is still in power, uh, and as I'm sure the council will be addressing when we bring her on, we, we still have a long way to go. We still have a lot of other things that we need to do. Um, and, as a matter of fact, and I, if she'd like to address this when she comes on, um, she will. But today the Trump administration scrapped uh, the final rule uh, 1557, which was a comprehensive health care protection that was written into the Affordable Care Act by the Obama administration. And essentially, by scrapping the rule, it uh, ends comprehensive uh, protection for trans people, disabled people, gay people, uh, women, and other folks. Uh, now, uh, Lambda Legal obviously are reviewing right now to see what they're going to be doing uh, in terms of this law. But yet here again is another discriminatory thing that has been visited above, you know, on, on certain segments of the population. Uh, by this administration and by this White House. So um, these are things that need to be addressed, and we need to address them. And, you know, to your point, I don't know what to say. I I just, uh, you know, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said, and I'm quoting the former secretary, and this is before he left the Trump administration, in reference to the president, he's a fucking moron. I'm inclined to agree with the Secretary of State on that. So, Brody, before we move on, what in the Affordable Care Act is being removed specifically? Um, because you have protections for LGBTQ people. Um, what what does that mean? When the Affordable Care Act was written, um, there was a rule that it was known as 1557, Section 1557 of the ACA, and it maintained vigorous enforcement of federal civil rights laws on the basis of race, color, national origin, disability, age, sex, okay? And the Obama administration continued that to specify gender identity and sexual orientation, okay? What the Trump administration has just done is they've removed that provision. By doing that, um, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I'll let I'll let the council address this, but my understanding by removing that protection, it makes it only too easy 
for discriminatory practices in healthcare against transgender individuals and gay and lesbian and bi queer people because they've taken it back and removed the protections that were put into place um, under the statutes. And as you know, right now, we're still waiting for the high court to rule on a Title VII case that directly addresses, you know, rights of trans people. So these Section 1557 was part of the Affordable Care Act. And again, I'm I'm being very generic about it because the specifics are a little bit more obviously complex than that. Right, right. Well, with that, and since we've raised lots of questions so far and we haven't gotten her expert opinion on it, um, I would like to welcome uh, Puneet to the show. Puneet, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, our our pleasure. As 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 you can tell, we're we're uh, just full of questions today. Um, <laughs> would you like to address what Brody was just talking about in terms of the uh, the rollback that the Trump administration did today, and what that means for um, LGBTQ Americans in our healthcare system? Sure, and and I'm happy to start there. And you know, of all of the things that you mentioned. Um, that are happening right now, let's not forget, we're also still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, You know, the COVID, the coronavirus is still quite present in the U.S. and cases are increasing in, I think, 20 states I heard yesterday. Um, And as as you probably know, LGBT people experience discrimination disproportionately already when trying to seek any kind of medical care. And a lot of people you know, avoid seeking medical care because they don't want to experience the discrimination that they know is likely going to be waiting for them when they go to the doctor's office or the hospital. So this rule does make it, you know, it, it exacerbates these conditions. We've already seen, um, we, we already have a number of cases against other rollbacks in healthcare for protection to people who are LGBT. And, you know, we, we know that trans people are often, denied care because of their gender identity, that LGBT people face harassment when they go to a doctor because of their sexual orientation. And these rollbacks of protections just make it more likely that that's going to happen. Um, and it is right. completely aligned with how the administration has been setting policy for, for, you know, for immigrants, for women, for, um, for every group that has experienced marginalization in the U.S. It seems to be increasing. Are there specific um, procedures specifically for transgender people that will be put out of reach to them because of this potential discrimination and lack of protection? Well, so it's, it's hard to put a fine point on it at this point because the rule is over 300 pages long and we're still reviewing it. Um, and and it it just depends. I mean, there it depends on the medical on the medical care practitioner on the health practitioner. There there are some who are inclusive, and you know a lot of folks have to travel greater distances to find health care that is affirming and inclusive. Um, but for some people, that might not be available in their state, and you know they rely on on protections on state federal local protections to protect them from discrimination. And this is one that has been, that the government is trying to gut. So, you know, it's it's hard to say that there's a particular 
um, procedure that federally will be unavailable, but it, it is going to make things generally more difficult for people who are LGBT. Right. Who already have difficulty. Right. And certainly, and certainly, and especially in different parts of the country, the tendency to discriminate is, is huge. Um, exactly. I wanted to switch over to the testimony that Lambda just um, uh, gave uh, to the Presidential Commission. But first, just so you could set the stage for us, what exactly is the Presidential Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice? And what um, what is their charter? Sure. So to give to explain the context of this commission, I'm actually going to roll the clock back um, to the last administration. And in 2015, after uh, the protests in Ferguson and Baltimore, after the deaths of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray, uh, the Obama administration actually set up a task force and commission to review policing nationwide and to make recommendations to improve it. And that was called the Presidential Task Force on 21st Century Policing. And what that did is is set out a list of reforms to improve um, and professionalize policing to encourage uh, police departments to to move forward and create new rules and non-discrimination policies and um, improve greater accountability. And that was a very inclusive commission. It included academics. It included public health experts. It included families and victims of police misconduct uh, because they were actually interested in creating a, a system of public safety that worked for the entirety of, of the community. And in November of last year, in 2019, um, the president, President Trump, issued a executive order setting up another commission that is very, it was constituted very differently. Um, there was no outreach to any civil rights groups. The membership consists entirely of current and former law enforcement. And what's most concerning is that the questions of, of inquiry that they've set out uh, clearly show an interest in basically preserving the perspective of law enforcement and law enforcement alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the questions that they are looking at is, is, quote, what is the cause of diminished respect for law enforcement and the laws they enforce, and how does it affect both police and public safety, unquote. And that should cause everyone alarm. <laughs> it's, right. It it sh- it shows basically, you know, the sort of mentality. Um, it, it reflects the the view that they have towards the role of police and and how um, how people who live in the U.S. should view the the police, regardless of their First Amendment right to criticize and protest. Right. Right. So um, they 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 put together this commission and their fact finding. Um, what was the um, the depth of the testimony that Lambda uh, produced and, and turned over to them? So they invited uh, Lambda to provide testimony, and, you know, we did so because it's um, – even if we don't expect the commission to actually come up with solutions that are meaningful and improve 
um, the ways that LGBT people are policed, it's really important to still identify all of the ways that police harm LGBT people and the um, ways that LGBT people are disproportionately criminalized. And so the testimony sort of laid out the big picture problems of, you know, the systemic discrimination that LGBT people experience from the very beginning of their lives when they are young, um, being pushed out of school, disproportionately being homeless, uh, to, you know, every phase of life facing discrimination in employment and trying to get housing that leads people to more likely experience poverty um, than their mm-hmm. heterosexual peers. And of course, it's, it's worse for people who are black and other people of color. Um, and it's worse for people who are trans. And then, of course, people who live in poverty or in low-income communities because of the ways and strategies that uh, law enforcement polices in the U.S., they are over-policed. And they are policed for minor crimes and arrested for minor crimes and things like loitering for hanging out on your stoop on a, on a hot day. Um, and so that leads to higher rates of incarceration. And um, once LGBT people are incarcerated, there are higher rates of, of sexual abuse and lack of access to medical care. And so the, the testimony laid out sort of the, the whole cycle of um, systemic discrimination and disproportionate harm that LGBT people experience in the United States. And how how would you compare that or or integrate that into what the American public has witnessed, which is kind of the trigger of the response right now, which is seeing um, black men particularly um, abused and, and, and killed at the hands of the police. Um, and what I'm sort of reading between the lines is even though we see that on the surface, a lot of the uh, persecution against LGBT people of color is probably more more common occurrence. Is is that a fair statement to say? Well, so I, I think it's what we have to remember is that there are fewer LGBT people in the United States, but when you look at the experiences of people who are LGBT, then yeah, they're more likely to be policed than their heterosexual peers, and people who are black yeah. and LGBT you know, experience more poverty than people who are black and heterosexual. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a compounding discrimination. The more identities people have that are marginalized by systemic actors, then the greater the likelihood that they're going to experience harm in, in multiple ways. Right, so I, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so there's, you know, in D.C., D.C. is a very progressive city. There are non-discrimination provisions in place, um, but there was a recent survey, and 11% of overall D.C. residents made less than $10,000 a year, but than 10000 And if you look at trans women of color, it was 57% of trans women of color that make less than $10,000 right. a year. And this is a city that has protections for employment discrimination based on gender identity. Brody? It just doesn't stop it. Yeah, no. Counselors, 
No, it, it's well, not only that, but counselors, if you're looking at systemic police violence in particular, and let me take you back to Washington. Um, Ruby Corrado, who is a friend of mine, runs Casa Ruby up in Northwest off Georgia Avenue. And Ruby yep. has been a long time, I guess you could say, institution uh, in terms of helping out not only just uh, black trans women of color, but Latinx women of color, and in particular, sex workers. And I've heard from Ruby repeatedly over the years, um, and, and we've seen it uh, in, in various stages of reporting, uh, that there has been a skewing, even by the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, in terms of violence against uh, the sex workers and the black trans workers. Uh, we had an incident that took place that I distinctly remember when I lived in Washington and was working in D.C. Uh, up near Logan Circle. Um, you know, and for our listeners, uh, that's uh, near the downtown part of Washington, and it's an area that is known for uh, sex trafficking, if you will. Uh, and there was a reaction by Metropolitan Police officers that was more than over the top uh, when it came to targeting uh, the sex workers on the street there. Um, let me extrapolate that further out. Would you not agree, based on that, that we probably see even more of it in other places where they're far less uh, progressive, particularly uh, in some cities uh, that are way less tolerant of that nonsense in states where it would not be expected. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, and I think we're seeing that right now in, in the epidemic of, of violence against trans women, um, particularly black trans women and, and all trans women of color. It's not just that they are targeted both by um, other people who are in the community, but when they are victims of violence themselves, they're not going to, you know, they're unlikely to go to the police for help because they know the police as other perpetrators of violence. You know, we hear a lot about, about shootings and assaults by police, but we don't hear as much about the sexual assaults that officers commit and especially commit against trans women of color and, and against sex workers. Um, so and even if they do go to the police and they ask for help, they're often not believed or they are misgendered, or if they've been killed, then they're misgendered by media. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a horrific cycle. And, and there's a reason why the, the movement for abolition is led by queer people of color. Um, they're the ones that experience the most harm from the system of policing and incarceration. And, you know, they, they, policing and this carceral system isn't keeping them safe. No, it's what would you mean, what Yeah, definitely, Rob. Yeah, what 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 do you envision as the the optimal end game um, uh, in in this? In kind of how do we attack the system? How do we redo the system so that the public stays safe? and the injustices are removed from it, and um, the systematic racism is nullified. What, and I I'm, I'm realize I'm asking a huge, huge, huge pie-in-the-sky mm-hmm. question, but what, where should we be directing towards 
to get there is kind of my point. Yeah, well, and, and there are people that have been working on this problem for far longer than I have, for longer than I've been alive. Uh, and, you know, you probably know that Black, Black Lives Matter was started by three women, two of whom are queer. Um, the Black Visions Collective in Minnesota that just convinced city council to defund the police department there uh, is, you know, they have a number of members who are queer and, and they're very inclusive and, and led by folks who are queer and trans. Um, there are people who've been working on this problem for a long time. And I think it's really important that we follow the lead of community leaders and coalitions that are working to decide what they want for public safety in their own communities. Um, you know, there is no one solution that's going to fit every community, but there are certainly people who are working within their own communities that have really good ideas of what safety looks like and what accountability looks like. And, you know, Mariam Kaba and many others have been, have been working on solutions of, of what that can mean and what, what other alternative forms of accountability are. Um, you know, I, I think even law enforcement would agree that they are involved in too much. They might, they might not describe it as having too much power, but they certainly do have too much power. Um, you know, why are there school police instead of mental health experts? Uh, why are police responding to people who are having mental health crises when the tools mm-hmm. that they have at their disposal are, are handcuffs and guns? You know, that's, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's a failure of governance. It's a failure of, of, um, of cities to invest in infrastructure that would actually resolve the problems that are underlying these issues. Yeah, and we've seen that on, on a couple of environments. One, you know, where we're seeing it now where the police are overly invested, but it also, on the uh, the flip side, um, I know here in California, the the whole mental health system was completely disbanded um, several decades ago, and what that has produced has been this influx of a lot of the homeless population because they are people who would have needed that system that, that you know, originally were in that system, um, were nurtured and helped rather than just tossed on the street. Um, so it's, it is a huge infrastructure issue. Um, can you, obviously, the testimony that was just given to the commission under Attorney General Barr, um, their misgivings that, you know, you're essentially spitting into the wind. Um, can you characterize what the Trump administration's position is and whether, you know, how long we're going to be able to survive with it in place? Uh, do you mean on, on policing or on public safety? Policing, both. Well, so... Luckily, the administration and the executives can have whatever opinion they want, but, I mean, for better or worse, policing is local. And so they can, they can support unions. They can provide funding. Um, the way that policing is constructed, it's, you know, 18,000-plus agencies throughout the United States that each are independent universes of their own. 
Um, what I think the administration has done is is really allow create an environment where where people feel a lot more comfortable um, knowing that it's going that they're not going to be held accountable. And you know there there has been an uptick in hate crimes. There there has been um, there has been an increase in in um, discrimination on a, on a variety of fronts. The administration itself doesn't control policing in the U.S. And the decision that is before the Supreme Court now, if that came down, nullifying um, Title I think it's Title Seven as protecting LGBTQ and transgender people. Um, what will the ramifications of that be? Right. So that is interpreting whether Title VII protects people based on sexual orientation or gender identity, and, and Title VII governs employment discrimination. So whether you could be fired from your job um, because of who you are or because of, of who you love. Um, so that also, you know, that will affect people who are gay or trans and work within police departments, but it shouldn't affect how they police or who they police. Right. Um, that continues right. to be a, a local function. Ready? Yeah, Counselor, one of the things that really bothers me, and, and I, the, the really, really bothers me, I, I get the, the local issues. Uh, you know, we've seen this repeatedly. Uh, these police unions in particular uh, have, uh, you know, made that, you know, the cause celebrate as far as getting their point across. But I think that the institutionalized violence we've seen repeatedly and it is coming to light virtually every day. I, you know, obviously I'm a part of the media. We're getting body cam footage. We're getting testimony. Uh, there was a case a couple of days ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where police officers literally beat up a couple of black kids for jaywalking. Um, yeah. I've seen in my exposure to LGBTQ media over the last probably decade and a couple of years, um, case after case after case of really questionable behaviors by law enforcement being inflicted on individuals, particularly of color, and once they found out that they may have been queer, non-binary, trans, or even gay, it was open season. And while I get that policing is a local function and that policing is, you know, handled at at that level and without going into the weeds with this counselor, but we've in some ways tried to get the federal government to do something, to issue guidelines, to be kind of the overarching, you know, bully pulpit, if you will, or, or catalyst or facilitator for changes of thought and process. But with this administration, all of that's gone out of the window. We saw it in Charlottesville, yeah. you know, the president of the United States. Well, I'm right. sure there's good people on both sides. What? Right. No, right. Good people on both right. Sides. Um, you know, you're a staff attorney for Lambda Legal. You guys are our legal arm. You're, you are the representatives of the community. You guys, you know, Little Glad, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, 
you know, all of you combined um, are such a critical, key, important part of the community in protecting an advocacy, legal advocacy for the rights. With this administration, with this Justice Department, are you telling them in a very nice way that there's a failure of leadership, or are you telling them point blank, you all are screwing this one up? Both, with an expectation that they will not resolve it. And I, I should I should say that while policing is local, you know, before I came to Lambda, it was actually an attorney in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, and we did pattern of practice investigations into police departments. Um, mm-hmm. And we, you know, we couldn't do, there are 18,000 departments, we certainly can't investigate all of them, but I think knowing that that was a function that would be used had somewhat of an effect. Uh, but I also think that what we're seeing today is, is what has been happening the entire time to communities that are black and low income and you know that they have been experiencing this their entire lives it's just that now there are more cameras and people have cell phones Mm -hmm. and the media is interested and so now everyone's seeing what black people have known all along um and so it's 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 not doesn't make it I mean, it's it's just something that the solution can't be just federal. Mm-hmm. The solution really does need to be every local community listening to people of color who are most affected by policing, who have been experiencing it, and who already know the solution. They've, they've been probably lobbying within their communities, organizing within their communities, and just haven't had the power to push their city councils to – implement the solutions that they've been asking for and having the media attention on this does has helped that okay let me ask you this then as a follow-up counselor you work for the civil rights division at the doj would you say there has been a definitive chilling effect particularly after this attorney general after sessions after the interim you know it took control of the DOJ. It just seems to me that there was lip service initially being paid to all of this, um, and it was kind of a, well, whatever. But with Barr in place, suddenly it's become very proactive uh, in terms of being not so friendly to not only just our community, but the black community in general, and, and throwing kind of a cast or a chilling effect pall over, the, over that particular division of justice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's no question. Um, and, and I, you know, I, it was, I left the civil rights division for a reason <laughs> because I knew oh, okay. it would be much easier to be effective. <laughs> outside of the government. <laughs> I guess that comes in the category of, uh, yes, your honor asked and answered. Okay. Fair enough. Bob. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was just, I appreciated your comment about um, the fact that there are more, you know, cell can cell uh, phone cameras, and you know the the capturing of these situations has become more pronounced when they existed all the time. And I'm wondering if, in terms of maybe a lot of LGBTQ uh, people of color, it's because they are a smaller part of the population 
that that capture hasn't happened as readily um, and why more people aren't aware of it. Or if it is captured, for example, um, the gentleman who had the, the woman in Central Park call the police on him because he was just asking her to put her, her dog on um, a leash actually was a gay man, but it wasn't germane to the story and, and wasn't really reported on that. You had to really look that was the situation. And so I guess exactly. my, my overall question there is, is, uh, is are we visible enough? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And, and I would say I, I, I think that all communities have more work to do to make sure that we are supporting and identifying the ways that people who are trans, people who are gay, people who are, who are bi, lesbian are affected differently and how gender is policed. Um, you know, and, and people don't always want to talk about every single time that they've been surveilled and stopped and every single offense, right, that they've experienced at the hands of police. Right. But if you look at who's most active in the police reform movement, it's folks who are queer and black. You know, it's, it's Black Lives Matter, two of the three founders. They are queer women of color. And in, in, in many movements, in many cities, P, you know, the local Black Lives Matter chapter, they're working really closely with both communities who are Black and communities who are queer and trans. And so it's, I think the, the larger, it, it may be that the larger newspapers, the larger TV, you know, channels and, and hosts, they don't have enough staff who see the intersections and lift up the intersections and understand why and how both gender and race are policed. Um, but it is, it is absolutely, it's absolutely there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a whole different question for you. Um, and this is, I'm, I'm tapping your, your lawyer brain on this one. Um, having seen different situations like this over the years. Um, I lived through the LA riots years ago with Rodney King. Um, there's sort of another shoe here that I know is going to drop. And that is the reaction and results of what happens when the killers of um, George Floyd go to trial. And so many of those cases the um, police officers are acquitted, uh, which I'm sure will be just, you know, throwing a, 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 a match onto a gasoline, you know, um, pile um, if that happens here. Um, what, uh, from your lawyer brain, how do you think those men will be defended and will it work? Um, I think it's always too hard to make predictions. I think there's a, a pretty strong case against Derek Chauvin because of the amount of time that he kept his knee on his neck after he was unconscious. I mean, there, right. I cannot imagine a defense that should be successful. Um, that said, you know, people, defense lawyers raise all sorts of um, often 
really harmful and offensive issues and you just never know. So I think it is hard to make a prediction, um, but there does seem to be a very strong case for George Floyd because he was unconscious. And, yeah. And, and do you feel like part of the systemic issue here is that um, because police are, you know, in theory and, and in practice put in dangerous situations, we just had a police deputy in our own community here who was gunned down and there's a huge, huge, rightly so community outpouring of, of grief over, over his life lost. Um, but because they are in those situations and those are tense and, and all that, that the judicial system tends to turn a blind eye when they um, are in situations where they're in the wrong and have, have, have killed somebody um, as particularly with uh, a racial bias. I mean, the, the problem is that the law gives police so much discretion and if they fear for their safety, if they think there's any threat of bodily harm, they just have so much discretion. And it's incredibly hard to find that they intended to commit harm. But in the case of George Floyd, there, there really is an uphill battle to create a case that he was a danger when Right. You know, there were multiple officers pinning him down, and after he's unconscious. It is really just a, a much harder case for defense. Um, but that said, like, you, you just never – I never want to make assumptions and, and you know, want to keep your expectations realistic, and especially because there are so many barriers um, to holding police accountable, especially in the court of law. And will this be in front of a jury? Um, it should be, yes. Okay. It's just that's usually where these things get particularly dicey because it's, right. it's then, then you're going to those deeper attitudes of jury members, which um, can be insurmountable and have proven to be in the past. Right. Right. It, it can make things much trickier. And I, I don't know what the jury pool is or, or who, what the demographics of the jurors are. Right. Brody? Well, if they pull from South Minneapolis, it's going to be an all-black jury, guaranteed. Um, Counselor, let's talk a little bit about um, impact and, and kind of the getting-to-know-you routine. Uh, again, I, I'm going to reference common ground for you and I, uh, since we're both creatures of Washington. The Metropolitan Police Department has had a gay and lesbian officers contingent for a while. It's a special unit that is, has been tasked uh, for addressing uh, any kind of crime or incidences within the gay community by having an officer who is either gay or lesbian, or I believe trans, we have a trans officer now, dispatched to the scene to either work with detectives or work with the uniforms, depending upon what the crime was and what the circumstance was. Now, as we're talking in terms of systemic violence, would it not be a good idea 
and, and, and just give me your spin on this and maybe how Lambda looks at it, that we need to push harder for law enforcement to look directly at, at more of that as being, you know, a solution. If they're going to talk about community policing, then maybe we should have, uh, you know, them paying actual attention to community uh, policing, having more of a proactive uh, approach to it, like Washington has done uh, with its unit. Although there's been uh, criticism that that should be expanded, and it, it's there's still limitations on it. So I'm not saying that the example by the Metropolitan Police Department obviously uh, is the you know the win-all catch-all for that, but you know moving forward to do something to alleviate where we have the potential or we have incidences of systemic violence by police officers against trans women, against uh, members of the LGBTQI plus community. Um, give me your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I just don't think that it's a sufficient solution. I mean, first of all, every officer needs to be able to respect the dignity and humanity of another person regardless of their identity. And, and that is just something that every officer has to be able to do. And creating these separate groups of, you know, specialized community officers, it just it, it creates two different types of police officers. It makes it seem like one's a good guy, one's a bad guy. And it's mm-hmm. really all, in addition to that, you know, people who identify as LGBT or or black um, or women can commit harms to their own communities. So simply being a member of a community doesn't mean that you're not going to perpetuate harms. True. So I, so I, I just don't think that identity matters as much as what an officer does. And officers of every identity need to be able to treat other people with dignity and humanity. And I just, I, I think the problem is the harm that, that all police officers cause uh, mm-hmm. when they really, when really, you know, the situation would have been much better resolved without their presence. Well, it seems to me that one of the problems that goes along with that, and by the way, I do agree with you, but I was citing that as an example. But as you've noticed, I'm sure, Counselor, in the last few days, we've heard a lot of opposition, particularly to defunding certain police functions by these police unions, uh, to the point where even the chief of police of the city of Minneapolis backed away from dealing with the police union. Uh, it, it seems that the police unions are going to be the largest percentage of the problem. And it doesn't seem as though they're all that well interested in being part of the solution. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, they have, and, and, they, and they have been historically, they have been the, I mean, it's hard to say what's the greatest impediment to accountability, but they are certainly among the top three. Um, and and there are some who have come forward and said, you know, there there are a couple of unions that have, have agreed with calls for some of the more systemic reforms. But yeah, no, by and large, absolutely, unions I, I are, are are a struggle. They are. They're 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 obviously a struggle. Um, 
Moving forward, um, particularly for, you know, you folks on the ground there at Land Illegal, uh, where do you see yourselves positioning as we are probably likely entertaining, you know, a new administration, fingers crossed, uh, come January? Uh, but it seems to me that there's going to be um, a tremendous amount of cleanup work, if you will, that'll have to be done after mm. this administration is gone. Um where do you guys see your role and, and, and where do you see uh, this conversation um, moving forward? Yeah, no, I think we certainly see our role in, in doing a lot of cleanup um, and hopefully we can quickly reverse much of the damage that is being done in sort of these last months of the administration uh, in, in the rollout of rules that can be more, more easily reversed in a, in a different administration. But I think some of these conversations are just very long-term. You know, the, the narrative over police reform um, or what to do about policing in the U.S. Um, has shifted so enormously, so dramatically, so quickly uh, and it's not, it, it's hard to separate from everything else that's happening too. You know, it's the fact that so many people have lost their cho- jobs in the last few months and those who have lost their jobs are disproportionately black and brown, people of color, immigrants, or if they're still working then they're forced to do so without sick days and they're forced to do so without, you know, safety nets. And the disparate deaths due to the coronavirus, the, the rates at which black people are affected by it are, are getting the virus and dying from it. And all of that comes right. together. And I think we really highlighted some of the major problems that have been here all along, but they've just been brought to light and are, are surfacing and, and being highlighted by the economic crash and the pandemic. Yeah, and the huge, very huge high profile deaths. Um, yeah, it's a huge, huge, um, huge thing that has to happen. Um, we are actually um, nearing the end of our time with you, which has been incredibly valuable. And I want to thank you so much for everything you've, you've shared with us. Um, what question should we have asked that we haven't asked you? I think you've asked all the right ones. It's a, it's a long road um, to travel. There's, you know, I think in some ways it's, it's great that these conversations are happening. These protests are bringing to light issues that have existed for a long time and just haven't gotten a lot of attention or as, as much attention as they should have. Uh, and there are already people out there who've been working on solutions uh, within their own communities, and we should follow their leadership. And especially black trans women, they've been experiencing the most violence from the most angles, and they know what they want. So we should listen to them. And if people want to support Lambda Legal's efforts um, uh, in this and in all the other fronts where you protect us, um, how can they get involved? Uh, they can go to our website. They, if they have questions, they can call our help desk. LambdaLegal.org is our website. Uh, lots of information about the work we do and how to support. If they have questions about uh, issues that they've experienced or Help Desk Hotline is on the website as well. And uh, Fantastic. well, I I want to thank have, you for everything you do and and the organization itself because 
we would be in a whole lot of trouble if you guys didn't exist. Um, Thank you so I mean, much. You've been a rock for so long and, and, um, and, and will continue to be. Um, Brody, anything final from you? No, uh, Counselor, uh, just thank you for your time. I really deeply appreciate uh, the work that you and your colleagues there in Washington, New York, Los Angeles uh, do for the LGBTQI plus uh, community. And uh, thank you for your advocacy work. Thank you so much. We, we appreciate having you. Um, so I want to thank Brody, um, as always, um, for all his work on the show and co-hosting duties. Um, also, for our listeners, thank you for, for, first of all, listening. Please do share us. Um, we are available on all the podcast, podcast apps. Um, please tell your friends. Have them subscribe. Uh, we appreciate you and them very much. Also, um, please listen to Out in Santa Cruz on Saturday nights. Um, you can listen to that on www.ksco.com. Uh, this weekend, we should be talking about uh, J.K. Rawlings and her transphobic attack and the response from um, both the uh, Harry Potter world and a lot of the actors um, who have portrayed uh, characters in her movies are coming out very much against her comments. But also, we will have some serious discussion from transgender experts taking some of her points point by point and refuting them um, as, as they should be Uh, for Brody and myself. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. We will be back again next week, same podcast time, same podcast place. And we look forward to speaking to you then. You've been listening to rated LGBT radio.